The title for the talk this evening is An Invitation. Uh, can you hear okay in the back as well? Is the other speakers okay? Yeah? Over the last year and a half or two years, I was living in Seattle, Washington, um, in the northwestern part of the United States, and I had the opportunity of working with a local community there, so I was working with a lot of uh, what we call lay people, uh, people who have uh, families and jobs and uh, partners and economic concerns, you know, people who are in the real world, so to speak. And I kind of was, wasn't surprised, but I sort of uh, was noticing how often people would say when I would talk to them that um, they couldn't meditate very much in their life, in their daily life, because they had too many things going on. Too much was happening, you know, too, too many uh, responsibilities and too many worries, too many concerns, and just couldn't make time for meditation. And meditation would just get pushed aside, and um, something that they would very much want to do a lot of the time, but just couldn't make a priority. And I can even remember many times in my own life when I would say to myself, I can't meditate now, it's just too much, you know, it's too, I'm too overwhelmed with my emotions, or I'm too upset right now, or you know, too, uh, I've got too much happening, and, and, and meditation just couldn't find its place. And yet, when I consider this, what's implied in this thought when we say this, and I can imagine you've even said it as well, at times uh, when you weren't able to um, make meditation important. What's implied in this thought is that conditions for meditation have to be just right. There have to be certain things in place for meditation to happen, like we may have to have a particularly clear mind, you know, without a lot of emotional turmoil, uh, our body needs to be fairly healthy and strong. We're not feeling too much pain or uh, difficulty within our body. Or, or it has to be quiet or, or, or undisturbed. I mean, there has to, somehow we set it up so that there have to be certain conditions for meditation to happen. And what I want to talk about tonight is bringing a whole different attitude to the way that we're viewing meditation and what needs to be in place for meditation to happen. And not only is this relevant for our life or our daily life outside, but also right here, because it's likely that that thought has arisen for you even in the last few days or if you've been here longer, last few weeks, you know. Like sometimes it seems like this is just perfect, you know, everything's coming together, you know, um, my mind is very clear, uh, I can follow my breath, I have no pain in my body, I feel very happy. Now, you know, now I'm getting somewhere. 
So I want to really look at that and turn the whole thing on its head, hopefully, because at this time of the state of the world and the way things are unfolding right now, we cannot wait for conditions to be a particular way for our meditation to happen. But it has to happen now. So how can we bring that attitude, that awake and alive and urgent attitude right into this moment so that we are not waiting? I want to begin by first telling you a story of something that happened this summer as a way to set this up and exemplify what I'm pointing to. I was only in the Northwest for about a year and a half and I had never been there before and I have since left uh, in the last few months. And one of the things I wanted to do before I left was to go over to the um, Olympic National Park in the um, most northern part of Washington State, which is really um, a, a fantastic place with very, very wild mountains and uh, uh, one of the few temperate rainforests and uh, very, very alive. And I'm so close, it was only about a four hours drive away from there and I wanted to go before I left. And I had the opportunity because a friend of mine was visiting from England actually, and uh, she was visiting with her son and, and she had four days and we didn't really know what to do. Uh, I wasn't sure what to do in Seattle. So I said, let's go to the National Park. It's only a four hour drive away. So we went. Uh, this was just this summer. And one of the main things that I wanted to do was see the rainforest. Because, as you may know, whether you've been in a rainforest or you know about rainforests, there's something uh, quite precious about that particular environment and its pristine and natural state that it's in. And so we went to the rainforest, and it uh, isn't a huge area, but large enough to get lost in it. And in the rainforest, we were there, and it was raining, of course. Um, as it does, and you know how you often can sometimes find your mind complaining a little bit that it's raining when it rains, but when you're in a rainforest, I notice that thought doesn't arise. <laughs> like, yes, it's raining, you know, <laughs> it's part of what's supposed to be happening here. How wonderful that it's raining, you know. And, and while I was, while we were walking, there was just this sense of, of everything dripping, just everything, all the trees and the plants and the, uh, just the, the density of the foliage, just everything just dripping and dripping. Every bit of space in the rainforest is taken up with some kind of living plant, living species. And there are plants living on top of other plants. And it makes for an extremely dense ground cover as well as uh, uh, above as well. Everything's just growing on top of everything else. Apparently, there's more growth per square inch in the rainforest than anywhere else in the world. There are 26 kinds of lichen and 14 different kinds of mosses. There are ferns and plants and flowers. There were seven different kinds of native trees 
There were spruce and hemlock and fir, red cedar, maple, alder, and cottonwood, all growing in the space. There were birds that were singing, which is also not that common, sometimes walking in the wilderness in the United States. So there were many bird songs. There were larks and finches and jays. The whole place was very much alive. The ground is so dense that it's very hard for any seedling to germinate because of the density of the, of the ground cover. So they just keep growing on top of what's ever there, and they grow on top of fallen, decayed trees. So any kind of tree that is fallen has a whole other forest that's growing on top of it. So everywhere you turn, it's just alive with green and dripping and, and living beings. Just this sense of incredible fullness And as I was walking, and as my friend and and her son were walking, we felt so at peace as we were walking through, and really one with everything all around. It, it It was so difficult not to feel that sense of interconnectedness, and that I, my body, was just the same body, breathing, pulsating, alive, that there was really no separation between me and the life here in the rainforest. Of course, it felt very, very sacred to walk through, as if I was walking in a a cathedral, but in some ways even more sacred because of the natural beauty. And I noticed, too, with that sense of interconnectedness and uh, connection with all of life there, how that sense of of metta or loving-kindness would so naturally just come forth from my heart, that sense of deep friendship with all things that were around. Very hard for the mind to move out of that ecstasy, that ecstatic beauty that was taking place. Thich Nhat Hanh, one of uh, our teachers, talks about the concept of interbeing. He coined this word, interbeing, pointing to the coexistence of all things that nothing stands by itself alone. And walking through the rainforest, it's very easy to get that sense how nothing could stand by itself alone. Everything was dependent on everything else for its life, for its existence. And as I was walking through there too, my breath was contributing to the uh, life that was in existence there. And, And it was giving me breath, it was giving me life. My breath and the breathing of the rainforest were all one. It was very, very alive. Now, this is only one part of the story that I want to tell, because there's also a sad part of the story. And that is that as you are driving to the rainforest, the main road that goes around along the northern peninsula on the way into the rainforest, and there's only one road, one main road that goes around the north. For most of the duration along that road, the forests are clear-cut. So that the only way into the rainforest is to be witness to this massive destruction to the forest that is adjacent to the rainforest. 
And it's not just maybe a half a mile, you know, but it goes on for miles. And these trees aren't just uh, cut, but these were big trees that were pulled out by the roots and they're tipped over on their side. So there's just these big stumps all over through the, uh, on the, on the, uh, in the field. And apparently they've been there for 10 or 15 years and it hasn't been uh, uh, used or uh, salvaged. And so driving through the rainforest, one has to go through there and then into the rainforest and then to get back out to go north one has to go back through the clear cut. And in going there it really has the sense that the rainforest and the destruction around the rainforest are connected. There's clearly no separation between the two. And I can't hold the image of the rainforest without also holding the image of the clear cut and the destroyed forest all around. And the part that makes it feel even more uh, visceral in some way is that it's so close to the rainforest that it feels like it's really beginning to impinge on this beauty, on the sacredness of this rainforest. And it makes one very concerned about what's going on there and what kind of protection, what kind of laws are in place so that, that so the rainforest is really protected. I might come back thinking that only the rainforest had a gift that it offered me and that somehow the destruction was bad. You know, it shouldn't be in the picture. Like somehow push the destruction of the rainforest out of the picture, that it's bad, it's wrong, that, that's, that somehow that's the, the enemy. It, it, it symbolizes the enemy, where the rainforest really symbolizes all that is good and all that is great. And I think in some ways that this is actually the common view and it's a view that I held myself for a very long time, that the clear cut should not be happening. It's bad, it's wrong, get it out. It has to be, it has to change, it has to be different. But I wonder if this only continues to reinforce this idea that we are so conditioned by that there really should only be nice things in this world Somehow there should only be pretty things in this world. Somehow this world world should not have the whole aspect of that which we call bad or evil. I grew up in a home where anything that was negative or painful was continually blotted out, pushed away. That any time that I attempted to express my pain and my anger and my hurt, it wasn't allowed, it wasn't okay. But the interesting thing is, in order to keep that pain down, there had to be a lot of yelling (laughs) and a lot of expression of pain in order to keep it down. Of course, that wasn't recognized. It was just, be quiet, don't talk about those things that 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 are hurtful, that are wrong, that are bad. 
So for me, most of my past, I would blot out that which was painful to my eyes or painful to my heart so that I would only have a good memory. Somehow I could keep my thoughts happy. I could keep my thoughts light and pretty. So I wouldn't have to uh, perceive or let in anything that was going to destroy that uh, imaginary world of, of light and happiness. I was so concerned that the things that felt hurtful or painful were going to be a scar on my happiness and that somehow I needed to protect the small little happiness that I, that I, that I had that seemed so fragile, that seemed so limited, that I didn't want anything to take it away. And I noticed that as I was going through the clear-cut, that I really let myself open to it. I really let myself, let let the image of it, let the feeling of it come into my heart so that I wouldn't push it away. Somehow I wouldn't fall back into the old way of being where somehow I had to keep the memory of the beautiful rainforest and I didn't want anything to interfere with that. I didn't want anything to hurt that memory when I went back home. I knew I couldn't do that. I knew that was the old way that just led to more fragmentation and separation in my life. And I see that when people do that, and we can see that happening now, how the media and how uh, people we speak to set up the polarity of good and evil. This is good, we are good, this is bad, they are evil. And how we create that separation and that division and that solidification of separateness through that view. And when we do that, it only encourages more feeling of anger and resentment and rage. And then that leads to more deeper feelings of shame and guilt because we don't know how to hold that, we don't know what to do with it. And when we create that kind of separation, it cuts off the ability to really listen more deeply to what's happening in our heart. To be able to listen from a deeper place of wholeness and connection to to not only our whole being but the the whole living being of this existence of which we are part. So I reflected on what the gift of the rainforest was for me, and the gift of the rainforest really was the truth of that interconnection. I mean, I felt that so profoundly when I was there. It was so clear that everything is interconnected. So then if all things are connected, then I must also be connected to the destruction around the rainforest. And if I really allow myself to open to this truth, then I can't push it out that the destruction of the clear-cut must also have a gift to offer me if I allow myself to open to it. 
not only the beautiful things, not only the 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 situations that that touch my heart in a joyful way have a gift for me, but also the things that touch my heart in a very painful way have a gift for me. If all things are truly connected, and I am connected to all things. So as I was driving through the the clear cut, and I really let myself feel that pain letting it in and not rejecting it and not separating from it, I let myself receive the gift. What was the gift? What was the gift of allowing myself to touch this pain? And as I fully paid attention to it, acknowledged it, looking at it, and it was so ravaged for miles and miles, so ravaged, It was like a wound on the face of the earth. And looking at it, it was almost like a cry for help, asking me to keep my eyes open. Don't go to sleep. It was almost like the message was, don't go to sleep. Don't fall into the trance of imaginary happiness. Keep your eyes open. Keep your heart open. Don't push it away. Was being asked to do that. And as I did that, I received the gift, which was one, one of the one aspect of the gift was that I noticed that by really being present to that, it was awakening my compassion in my heart to care for and protect all living things. To want to do that, to say yes. I need to have compassion here to protect the earth so this doesn't keep happening. When I let myself feel that compassion deeply, it wasn't anger. I wasn't feeling angry. I was feeling compassion and a sense of responsibility. Asking myself, well, what can I do? What is my responsibility? What action can I take so that I am living from wisdom, from a deep place of the truth of interconnection? What can I do so that my my actions, my way of being is really exemplifying what I understand to be true? And it awoke, it awakened in me and awakens in me a sense of urgency that I can't wait. I can't wait. And certainly seeing the clear cut so close to the, to the rainforest and, and really seeing right those, those times when it would just stop and then, then there would just be this very lush forest again and then, and then coming through that and then stop, uh, come, the road would then be clear cut again. You're just seeing the, the, the boundary of how that can actually happen. It's such a sense of urgency that something has to be done now. There is no time to lose. And it points to how practice, when we talk about practice, it's not just a good feeling. It's not just about having good, coming to some place where we feel good in ourselves, or we feel good about the way things are. But it's really about awakening, waking up. 
keeping our eyes open, keeping our hearts open so that we can see the truth of things. And when we see the truth of things, we see that, yes, there are very, very beautiful things on this earth within our, on this earth and within ourselves and other people that are very beautiful and very um, um, priceless and precious. But there are also things that are horrid, as, as we can all witness at this time. So this is really a very powerful teaching that we are being invited to undertake. The invitation to open to both joy and to sorrow and to receive the gift, to receive the offering from both to allow each to have its impact on us. And then to allow the wisdom to naturally arise from each experience, each, each circumstance. So we can ask ourselves in situations, what is the gift I am receiving from this joy? What is the gift I am receiving from this pain? Is it possible for us to open in that way? It's a very different attitude because then we are not setting up hierarchy, manipulating situations to our liking, to our satisfaction which is really what mostly happens in the human condition. But we're really saying, yes, maybe I can open to it all. Maybe I can, which is surely a very courageous act when we really start to sense what this practice is really about. Well, what I'm talking about, what this aspect of the practice is about, is really using adversarial conditions or adversaries to enhance our practice. To enhance our practice, to strengthen our practice. This is a very different attitude. Not pushing it out, but using it. It's like manure, you know, manure for Bodhi. You've heard that phrase? Uh, the Bodhi tree is where the, the, Buddha, the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree for his liberation, his enlightenment. So sometimes we say it's manure for Bodhi, it's good fertilizer, you know. But it's hard sometimes to really let that in. Usually difficult situations are viewed as obstacles or nuisances, you know, get rid of it. And, and what we find, too, is that we can just discard our meditation practice and wait until things get better, you know? Can't do that now. Got to wait until things get better. And then we just go into a trance 
we in some ways can pretend that it isn't even that bad, you know, find some kind of distraction, find some way, if we're lucky, you know, if, if the pain isn't just gripping us like it is for some people, some people even in this room, maybe find some kind of distraction and then wait it out, you know. We do that. We do wait. I mean, I see myself doing that at the time. It just seems easier just to, to go into that trance for a while. I wonder if, you know, just using a very simple example of this waiting or this postponing, I think we can see it really around the bell at the end of a meditation session. How many times, <laughs> maybe, and how many people, how many people have said even this week, you know, that last 10 minutes or that last 15 minutes, I just can't sit there. I just can't do it. You know, it's like it's just too hard. And what happens? You know, we, we do. We go into some kind of a trance, you know, find something to space out with, some fantasy or something to think about, you know, some way we don't have to really feel that last 10 minutes, no, it's not all the time, you know, it's not for everybody, just sometimes. And then that bell rings, you know, we hear that. Isn't it a sweet sound? <laughs> sweet sound of the bell. What is it? <laughs> what happens? What is actually the difference? between the moment before the bell and the moment after the bell. Something's happened because after the bell, ah, you know, great relief, freedom, liberation, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think maybe we could recognize that we should wait for the bell and after the bell goes off, then realize that's meditation. You know, what we were doing before might be questionable, whether that was meditation. But that feeling of, ah, when we really relax and let go, that's the meditation. But what is that, you know? There's some way that we don't really want to feel that agitation or that um, whatever it is that's occurring, there may be a little pain or some boredom or something, something there. And then through the resistance and through the contraction of not wanting to feel, then it feels even worse. And then we find that we just have to hold our breath and kind of get through the next five minutes and then the bell, and we can breathe. <sighs> you see how we just kind of, we, we can wrap ourselves up into a little ball and wonder why we're, why we're so unhappy for those minutes, for those moments. So, so we have a way of doing it. We, we, we can postpone our practice until something seems a little bit better. And I'm not saying this is wrong. You know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do this. What I'm doing is just wanting to name it, to point it out, so that perhaps we can look at it and see what we're doing, so that maybe we can be free of that particular pattern. 
I had a, um, I, have, I may have mentioned the Dharma talk before, but I had about uh, 15 years ago, I was at an amusement park with my niece, who was about 10 years old at the time, and uh, she wanted to go up on a roller coaster, and so it was a pretty high roller coaster, and so we were going up and up and up and up and up and up and up, and just getting to the top, you know, that feeling, you know. And she turned to me, she was only 10 years old, but she turned to me and she said, hold your breath and then you won't have to feel anything. <laughs> Which is exactly what she was going to do. Yeah. It was probably what I did. <laughs> but that's really it. You know, we've learned that strategy. We've learned that if we hold our breath, we don't really have to feel very much. And then you come to a meditation retreat such as this, and we keep telling you to breathe. <laughs> you know, not only to breathe, but feel your breath. You know, come down into your breath, feel your breath. And what that does is it means that you might have to feel. You might have to be present. You might have to feel what's happening inside. And, and take a look next time you feel a bit... Um, contracted or upset or fearful, notice what happens to your breath. It's the first thing that happens. We just tighten up and the breath gets very shallow. We get fearful. That's what happens. We get fearful. And so when we can bring our attention to the breath and use that as a constant practice, not just the practice we do here in the meditation hall, but one we take with us all through the day, then we can use that tightening or that contraction of the breath as a signal to let go. We can feel how we tighten up, whether it's overexcitement, we can get excited about something, we can get scared, and we learn how to keep breathing, particularly with the out-breath. Breathe out, let go. And that breathing out and opening the body brings us a bit closer to the experience. Whether the experience is one of an inner experience or whether it's an outer experience, we start to meet that a little bit more, which is kind of what we don't want to do. (laughs) It's a little bit easier to kind of pull back into the shell. But the practice is to start seeing if we can let go a little bit more, breathe and meet what's happening, whatever that is. Can we meet it? Just as it is. So in that case, the situation, whether it's inner or outer, doesn't have to change at all. doesn't matter whether I'm feeling scared or whether I'm feeling agitated or guilty or shame or jealous or angry or whether somebody else is. Can I just breathe and see if I can meet it? Be there. Then we're not really postponing our practice. Because none of the conditions need to change right now. 
is a quote from the Dalai Lama. If you can't practice when you're suffering because of what it does to your mind, and you can't practice when you're happy because of attachment to your happiness, then there will never be a time when you can practice at all. So maybe the practice (laughs) is paying attention to how we're doing that. How we're saying to ourselves that we can't practice now because I'm suffering too much, or we can't practice now because if I pay attention I might lose this happiness. I might not be able to hold on to the joy and the beauty of this moment if I really let go. If I really let go, maybe the joy will go too. But actually, the, the changing of that joy has nothing to do with your holding on or not holding on. Because all things of this world are transient. They come and they go, whether we're holding on or not holding on. Too bad, isn't it, that our holding on doesn't really make a difference. (laughs) So how do we actually do this? How do we take on using difficulties in our practice to actually enhance our practice? How do we really take this on? How do we do this? The first thing that has to be in place in order to really take this on is for our motivation to be strong. We really have to have strong motivation in practice to face the difficult. Because if our motivation is strong, and what brings about strong motivation is understanding, which is being communicated here, if we don't have that strong motivation, we'll say, forget it. <laughs> you know, forget it. This is, you know, I don't want to do this. But that strong motivation allows us to stay clear with our intention. But for motivation to be strong, our faith needs to be strong. We have to have faith that actually if I do this, if I hang in there, if I stay with this, it's going to make a difference. (laughs) Because otherwise it'll seem like purely a waste of time. And if there's very little faith in transformation, then what'll happen is that the old habits will just keep going on. We'll just keep getting caught in our old ways of being, and the transformation actually won't come about. So we need to have faith in transformation in order for transformation to happen. And sometimes that faith can come about either by uh, noticing or witnessing somebody else uh, and what's happened to them, or, or some teachings that we've read, or some contact we've had. Or it comes about, as I mentioned the other night, through our direct evidence that starts to accumulate and get stronger and stronger, which then increases our motivation. One persistent habit that we have as human beings is to try to make things better all the time. 
We want to make things better. And, and it's the ego's job, in a way. It's the job of the self to um, uh, want more pleasure and comfort and security. That's, that's what the ego um, uh, creates, generates. And the habit, the ego habit, is to constantly seek this out, to seek, a, seek out the pleasure and the security and the comfort. And that's not bad, but it's important to see that this is really what empowers our life for the most part. This is what, where we gather the momentum in our life is for more security, more comfort, to move towards more pleasure. And sometimes we even use our Dharma practice for this, so that we, we can feel better or we can um, have better, uh, more happier or pleasant experiences. I have one teacher who calls this way of practicing, um, calls this Dharma polish. <laughs> using the Dharma, using these, these teachings to get it, bring a shine to our life, you know, bring sparkle to our life. Kind of misses the point a little bit. But to truly take on using adversaries as our practice, to enhance our practice, we actually have to let go of our desire for security. We have to let go of our desire for comfort. It doesn't mean that we won't gain security or have comfort in our lives. It means we have to let go of our attachment to it, our clinging to it, our striving after it as the one thing that's going to make a difference in our lives. We'll still do the things that resonate for us and that are that resonate with our deepest values, but we begin to meet life with more openness, with more acceptance, with acceptance for the way things are, just as they are, without being in conflict with the way things are so much of the time. So to start, to generate that motivation in our practice, we need to begin with clear determination and intention. And we need to set that intention to meet the difficulties in our lives before we're actually in the difficulty, if we're, like, if we're lucky, if, we're, if we have that opportunity. Because when we're finally in the difficulty and the pain, we don't have as much strength to draw on because we need so much energy to deal with the circumstances that we're in. So if we're lucky, we can set the intention to do that beforehand. If we're not so lucky, we can set the intention while we're in the midst of the pain. But setting that is really, is really crucial to the motivation. And we can do this with using phrases or using words as we do in the loving-kindness and compassion meditation. You and I can say to ourselves, and, and maybe as I say these words, let them in and see, just kind of try them on and see how they feel as you hear these words. I will not hold anything as an enemy. I will not hold anything as an enemy. 
I will have an attitude of openness to all of life, even to that which is unpleasant. This one might be a little harder. I will welcome the unpleasant with open enthusiasm. How about that one? Are you ready? (laughs) With open enthusiasm. But this points to the possibility for us that what, what is sometimes called the warrior spirit in the practice is what we're being asked of here. We're usually doing the opposite, which is hoping and wishing that things don't go wrong, right? You know, we, can, we easily regard pain and suffering as that which is harmful and undesirable, and we'll do everything we can to make sure that we don't have anything to do with it. We somehow believe that by keeping up our resistance, and, and this is just, this is just the, the human condition that I'm speaking about, we believe that keep, by keeping up our resistance that somehow we can actually keep the difficult part of life out. It's an interesting way, it's an interesting position that the ego holds, that the, that the human mind holds, that, that we, we can contract enough, we can pull back enough, that we can actually keep life out the painful parts of life out. And yet one of our fears that we have is that if I, if I actually invite the difficulty in, which is what is being asked this evening, that I, be, I believe that um, I will really be bringing more pain into my life. That if I really invite it in and say, okay, I'm ready to accept this with open enthusiasm, that more is going to come. You know, it's just going to be heaped up on top of me. And that's really scary. But I want to point out that it's actually this attitude that is the cause for more disruption and pain in our lives. And there's two reasons for that. The first reason is that this is a very self-centered view because it reinforces the idea that I'm actually responsible for all that happens and that somehow I can control what happens to me. So if I invite it in, I'm actually inviting in all the pain and suffering and it's all just going to be heaped on. It doesn't work like that. That's a completely selfish, self-centered view of life. And the second reason that it's so disruptive is, is because it's superstitious. It's, it's just the idea that we can keep the hard part of life out somehow. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a myth. But it is actually this welcoming attitude that frees our mind from the pain that arises in the chaos. It's when we have the welcoming mind, when we're, when we're not caught up in contraction and fear, that we can actually deal with what's in front of us. Because we're not so bound up 
in our self-identified view. This is what brings the release. This is the source of our strength, the source of our empowerment. And it's this welcoming and open attitude that increases our our capacity to meet life just as it is. And that's why we say again and again, see things just as they are. Another way of saying is meet things just as they are. And so we need to identify the way that we don't do that, the way that we we pull in, the way we hold our breath, the way we contract, the way we push away, the way we get angry and we feel full of hatred. When we release that, when we find some way, when we find some understanding, some insight, some wisdom to, to find a way to let go and release, then we can meet life just as it is. Without needing to hold on to an imaginary idea of this world and how it could be or imaginary idea of myself and how I could be or how someone else could be. But we drop deeply into acceptance in the most unfathomable way. And our practice keeps dropping us and dropping us and dropping us further into that acceptance. until there is no more struggle, no more conflict with the way things are. And by allowing in the pain when it's present, not always just looking for suffering everywhere. It's not about just looking for the suffering aspect that's going on, but just acknowledging it when it's present. Because there are many, many times where there isn't suffering, where it's not painful, and there we feel a great deal of joy and happiness and contentment, and we're in touch with beauty and the sacred. But when the pain is there, and when we allow it in when it's present, we learn how to transform it. And what it's transformed in, what it's transformed into, are two aspects. Two aspects of its true nature. One aspect is its selfless, empty, unfragmented nature where it is not separate from all things of life. And the other aspect is its compassionate nature. Because we are turning love towards the face of pain. And when we turn love towards pain, it transforms transforms into compassion. And this is the essence of Buddha Dhamma, Buddha Dhamma practice. Seeing these two true aspects 
the aspects of emptiness or the unfragmented selfless nature and compassion. And our heart awakens to both. And how do we do this? By seeing things as they are. Seeing their true reality. I think I'll end with this poem, actually, was called The Invitation, uh, by a Native American elder, Oriah Mountain Dream. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dreams, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are square in your moon. I want to know if you have touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have opened, if you, if you have been opened by life's betrayal, or have become shriveled or closed through fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine and your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine and your own, if you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, or to remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you're telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself, if you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. I want to know if you can be faithful and therefore be trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it's not pretty every day, and if you can source your life from God's presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand on the edge of a lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes. It doesn't interest me to know where you... <coughs> where you live or how much money you have. <clears throat> I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary, <clears throat> weary and bruised to the bone and do what needs to be done for the children. It doesn't interest me who you are, how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moment. Let's just sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.